TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. TCL, America's fastest growing TV brand. It's Minnesota Sports Rewind. Hey everybody, welcome to Minnesota Sports Rewind, where we go back and do deep dives into notable Minnesota sports events from past years, games, trades, pretty much anything you can think of is going to be covered on this. I'm Phil Mackey, and we've also got Derek Wetmore and Rami Makloff here from the Score North Twin Show. And gentlemen, this episode is all about the Moneyball game, 2002 American League Division Series, Game 5 between the Contraction Twins and the Oakland A's, and uh, I forgot right off the right off the bat when the ESPN broadcast starts. I had completely forgotten about John Miller and Joe Morgan. Like, like you they, forgot they were people. Forgot they existed. <laughs> like they were... It is a fabulous day here in the Oakland San Francisco Bay Area. Temperatures in the 80s on the eastern side of the bay. The Minnesota Twins and Oakland Athletics. It's a winner take all game five, and the Oakland Athletics take the field. They were the voices of baseball on ESPN for 20 years. Yep. So you had. You had silky smooth John Miller and optimistic John Miller and just crusty old Joe Morgan in the he booth. He was for this so game. cranky. I forgot how cranky Joe Morgan could be. I was probably too young to have like hated Joe Morgan, but you guys know the site Fire Joe Morgan, like all yeah. that yeah. stuff that yeah. spawned out. It, it was kind of like I would even call it the precursor to Deadspin, where we like to mock everything and like make fun of the establishment. That was kind of one of the first ones. My point is, I was probably too young to have disliked him as a broadcaster, but wow, was he annoying on this game. You did game. by the end of the game? By the end of this okay. nine-inning yeah. baseball game, I was like, that's that's plenty for me. We're good here. So we should, okay, let, put a pin in that because sure, we should, we should definitely why. circle back yeah, to there was, the Yeah, there was one moment, and like you said, we'll circle back to it. That was like the epitome of Joe Morgan okay. and why he's Cranky Joe. <laughs> Okay. Uh, I have a I have a Joe Morgan anecdote too from like when the internet became a thing and Joe Morgan got that's pretty much what happened every post on FireJoeMorgan.com <laughs> but um, but let's let's set the landscape here and and then we'll go through just a quick summary of the game and then some key questions so in the early two thousands the and going back and reading some of the timeline on this was like wow and then and then the and then the Twins became this this American League Central powerhouse. Out of all of this uh, adversity, but in the early 2000s, the Twins and the Expos were threatened with the possibility of contraction from uh, Major League Baseball. In fact, Carl Polad volunteered the Twins for contraction himself, A, out of frustration from not getting a new publicly funded stadium, which uh, was a big thing in the late 90s and early 2000s here in the Twin Cities, and B, because the Twins were just flat out one of the worst teams in baseball with no attendance from like 1993 until... Uh, until the early 2000s, I so. had forgotten that they were con- they were candidates for a contraction, and I did not know at all until you told me that Polad had volunteered. That why would he do that? Why would he volunteer him for? A con- what was the plan there? Uh, well, experts estimated he could have sold the Twins at the time for between two hundred and two hundred fifty million dollars after buying them for thirty four. You can million sell a team that's been contracted. Isn't that basically going out of business? Major League Baseball was essentially going to absorb it, absorb the okay. team, and uh, and then and then what would happen to the players is Twins players would have been up for some sort of dis- dispersal or disbursement draft. Yeah. yeah. So I'm trying to think of. You know, like Corey Kosky would have just gone to the worst team in baseball, and then the next worst team in baseball would have grabbed Torrey Hunter or however that uh, yeah. played out. So, um, the late '90s, early 2000s were this dark period of just miscast players and 90 lost seasons and bad pitching, and the steroid era was in full bloom. But the Twins never had any 20 home run hitters, and uh, out of that came. A pop-up season in 2001 in which the Twins almost made the playoffs completely out of nowhere. And then uh, in 2002, everything culminated with a division championship, ALDS Game 5 win over the Oakland Days uh, that that we're going to dive into here. And you had two of the lowest budget teams in baseball racking up almost 200 combined wins and throwing haymakers at each other. In this five games, this is also Ron Gardenhire's first year as Twins manager taking over. Oh, was it? Okay, you had uh, skinny Ron Gardenhire. Yeah, you know, this five years. He was uh, quite slender. So, what were um when you when you when you just go through the first couple innings and you so Brad Racky, Mark Mulder, Mark Mulder on three days rest. By the way, uh, you had and through uh, eight hundred pitches. Yes, on three days rest. Yeah, uh, you had uh, uh, a Twins lineup with Jock Jones, Christian Guzman, Corey Kosky, Matthew Lecroy, who was later 
taken out of the game for David Ortiz, Tori Hunter, Doug Mankiewicz, Michael <coughs> Kadire, uh, AJ Pierzynski, Denny Hawking. Denny Hawking. Yeah. Filling in for an injured Luis Rivas. That was the <laughs> Twins team of the time. I mean, that was it. Uh, what I couldn't get over, boys, I don't know if you had the same thought. And and I grew up like admiring Brad Radke and... In fact, I might just blame him on my own pitching career flaming out because I mistakenly thought that you could be a soft tossing righty as mm. long as your control no. is good enough and you have I mean, a changeup. He can. Yeah, he can. You can't. So what I was gonna right. say is like, how does that guy not come in and get torched every time? Like ninety one mile an hour fastball, yeah, he can spot it, that's great. But I looked at his stuff and I was like, Wow, that dude would get lit up today. Yeah. No, for and, sure. And he carved him up. It was a good game. It was a well-pitched game. You don't see those guys that much anymore, the Brad Radkes. No. Yeah, they, they don't exist in today's baseball. They're either think... left-handed or they're in double-A. Right. I don't think they can exist anymore. Kyle Hendricks? Yeah, he's probably the closest example. Um, the the Twins actually spent a long time trying to find their Moby Dick white whale, Brad Radke, <laughs> reincarnate. They, they legitimately spent 15 years looking for the next Brad Radke. I don't know if they ever found him. But uh, Scott Baker was a, a slightly different pitcher because he had the fastball up and the big curve. Nick Blackburn is maybe the closest example that I can think of in terms mm-hmm. of like Brad Radke diet. Yeah, Kevin. Did you say Kevin Slowey already? Slowey, I didn't He's bring that up. Next. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, just kind of like a nitpick the corners, try to get him out with your ninety mile an hour fastball. So that that was the Twins lineup. If you would have looked at the Twins lineup two years earlier, that almost that exact lineup was their Triple A lineup, and they would have had guy in nineteen ninety nine or two thousand. They had guys like. Otis Nixon and just all these random older players from uh, like Roberto Kelly was on the Twins in the late nineties. Just these castaways, like castaways from formerly good teams. Yes, right, exactly. Now the A's lineup. This was the the post Jason Giambi A's that are featured in the Brad Pitt movie Moneyball. And, of course, that movie pretty much ignores that they had three of the best starting pitchers in the yeah. American League. That's another tangent. I'll let you finish. It was Go a good the movie. Don't ruin it for me. Well, here's... <laughs> you should read the book first. <laughs> You'd like it. That's actually one of the rare instances where I did read the book before yeah. watching the movie. Uh, the A's lineup was Ray Durham, who they traded for midseason in his prime from the White Sox. Scott Hatterberg, who's one of the featured characters or uh, or fixtures in Moneyball. You have Miguel Tejada still batting third, Eric Chavez, Jermaine Dye, old David Justice in this yeah. lineup. Mark I forgot Ellis. David Justice was still hacking up yeah. outfields in 2002. Sure was. He was a butcher out there. But he got he drew walks and he got on base, yep. and that's how he wound up on the Oakland A's in the, in the 2002 season. Mark Ellis, Terrence Long, and uh, Ramon Hernandez. And the A's also used Sidewinder and quirky Chad Bradford out yeah. of the bullpen, and Billy Koch. With the weird flavor saver goatee was their uh, was their ace closer. The twins out of the bullpen brought in J.C. Romero, Latroy Hawkins, and we'll get to it. Eddie Gordado made things very fun. <laughs> yes, he did in the night. So I just want I want to run through a quick summary of this and then open up for just discussion and questions and everything. So that and stop me throughout this if you've got uh, on this summary if you've got things to point out. The twins loaded the bases in the second inning off a of Matthew LeCroy infield single. Uh, by the way, yes, Matthew LeCroy yeah, infield you, single. You heard that right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a Tory Hunter double and then an intentional walk to Michael Kadire uh, brought Denny Hawking uh, to the plate for a first blood two-out RBI single to put the Twins up one to nothing. Rivas sitting in the dugout with a little hamstring tightness today. So Garden Island for the veteran Hawking. Bases loaded, two down. That is up the middle for a base hit. One run is in. Here comes Hunter with great speed. He's going to be held. And the big talker at the end of the inning was, how does Torrey Hunter with two outs not score from second base on a single to center field? And, and the Al Newman was shortly after there, I think, fired as the third base coach maybe a year or two later. No one was more upset about that than Joe Morgan. Joe this Morgan, is what I was yes. talking about when I said that it was this was classic vintage Joe Morgan. He complained about it the rest of that half inning, the bottom of the second inning, and then in the third inning, which I'm sure you were about to get to, Phil, they scored a run. Uh, I forgot who it was that scored the run. Christian, Some... Christian Guzman doubled, okay. and then Matthew LeCroy drilled a single up the middle to make it 2 nothing. And it was a similar hit, 
to the similar a similar spot in the field, and so Joe Morgan took the opportunity to say, "You see, that's right. How does <laughs> how did Tory Hunter not score on a, on that same exact play just one inning ago? He was not over it. He let it go. He, he 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 pounded at that for an inning and a half. But you know what? And and I'll let you keep going with the game recap. But I felt through the first like eight innings. I mean, then it got interesting. AJ's home run. We'll get to all that. But like. I just got this sense that every player, manager, coach at the ballpark that day felt when they showed up at the park that this was going to be a one-run game. And, like, they did everything in their power to make sure that this was a one one way or the other. Someone's going down with a one-run win, and the other team's going to lose it. That a questionable hold, obviously. So Twins take a 2-0 lead, and then we get to the bottom of the third inning with two outs, and Ray Durham hits a bomb, to just a laser to center field off Brad Radke to make it 2-1. Durham into center field deep. Going back is Hunter. Still going back. This ball is gone! And then we basically went like two hours with almost nothing happening. I don't think the A's had a runner past second base in the next two hours. The Twins had a couple little threats. So the game definitely, it, it, I, don't, I wouldn't say it became boring because it was a one-run game and it's game five and it there's still tense. high tensions. Right. But uh, it, it, it wasn't action-packed between the fourth and the ninth inning. So we're literally just going to skip ahead to one of the most action-packed innings maybe in Twins history. Uh, top of the ninth inning, Billy Koch comes in to try and just hold the the deficit to one run, and that's where AJ Pierzynski hits a bomb to right center field to make it four to one, and uh, and does AJ things coming across home plate yep. with the forearm bashing. Gardenhire, you're going to try to maybe add one on here, maybe drop down a bun or something here, or hit and run, try to do something to get you another run. Krasinski drives one deep in the right field. Die going back. This ball is gone. A home run. Under the top of the scoreboard. And that is a home run. A.J. Krasinski has given them two more runs. He hit only six home runs all year long. And this one just above the out-of-town scoreboard. And out of here, it is one Minnesota. And suddenly, the Coliseum sounds tomb-like. And I think he yelled at someone in the crowd. He was, like, yelling at chirping A's fans. Yeah, he did. Like, all the things. But I, I don't remember, as a Twins fan in that moment, thinking of A.J. Pierzynski as an agitator. Sure. It was only when he went to San Francisco and then to Chicago that the world found out, and even some Twins fans, I guess, like me, found out, oh, this guy is kind of a... This guy's was kind of was he not that guy when he was here? Or had he no, just he not was. Been... Oh, he was. Okay, so he hadn't done it long enough to to garner the reputation. Yeah. Okay. And, and when All it's right. for you, it's different, right? Like I think, I mean the the oh word, for sure. Like the AJ thing is people said for years after is like, yeah, he was fiery, and when he was playing for you, you loved him, and then mm-hmm. he was playing against you and you hated him. He's yeah. Matthew Delvadova, essentially. He's probably better than NBA. that. I just mean it, to use an NBA comparison no, okay. of that type of guy. That's fair. He's a better version of a Matthew Delavan. Yeah, better player. I just meant in terms of his annoyance. I sure. remember thinking, and then it was uh, refreshed in my memory watching the replay. I remember thinking, like, in the handshake line, the high fives as he's going through the caterpillar and just slapping skin. Dude. Don't break someone's hand. <laughs> They're going to need that in the championship series. The AJ Pruszynski high five is de- the aggressive high five is definitely a thing. Right? It's, oh, it's, for sure. And it looks devastating. Yeah. I'm like, okay, Rivas is already hurt. You can't kill Denny Hawking with a high five. You're going to so, need him. Somebody tweeted me. They knew exactly what AJ Pruszynski said when he uh, when he crossed the plate. I'm trying to find the tweet right now. It, it was. I'll find it. I'll get. I'll. I'll come back as he to as you he guys. stared down some Oakland A's fan. You well, you find it, and I'll finish the recap here because so that here it ball is. Goes, he yelled booyah okay. when, <laughs> when, he, when he put his when he put his foot down on home plate. He yelled booyah. I mean, we've Where's all it? been there. We've, we've all but been. Booyah there. was a huge. Stuart Scott yeah. by then had made booyah. Oh yeah, no, thing, right? booyah was in its heyday Man. for sure. So when that ball goes over the fence, I think everyone in the ballpark, everyone in an A's uniform in that moment. Everyone in a Twins uniform certainly thought, oh, it's over. 4-1, to one, and Eddie Gordado was one of the best closers in baseball that year. So I knew and- I knew the Twins won going into it, but, I mean, I watch a lot of playoff baseball, and I wasn't 
the Twins weren't my team. I wasn't covering them at the time. So uh, it was just another playoff game lost sure. in the shuffle. So watching this game, I knew the outcome, but I didn't know how we got there or what the final score was. I went out of my way to not go and research that before I watched oh, it. Beautiful. To, to experience it like it's the first time <laughs> as much as I possibly could. And I really felt when when he hit that home run and they went up 4-1, to one, I was like, this game is over. I was like, why are we even doing this? I was like, this isn't that interesting a game. Why are we doing this show? Something must happen. So I was sitting there the whole time waiting for something and, to happen. And some of it is, too, uh, like the next thing that happened was David Ortiz a few batters later comes up and ropes a double to the gap in right center to make it 5-1. to one. So I would say even if the game ended 5-1, to one, there's meat on this bone because, boy, David Ortiz had a huge hit. What happened to him? Why did the Twins? Right. That, that, that was basically the last big hit he had with the Twins because they just let him go in the offseason. Uh, A.J. Pierzynski, you know, eventually a year later he was traded for a boatload. That's a whole other episode, by the way. The, yeah. David Ortiz and, and then A.J. Pierzynski. So game over, right? Mm-hmm. Eddie Gardado comes in. And uh, uh, right away, Eric Chavez beats out an infield single. Two batters later, David Justice hits a one-out double. And so now there's two men in scoring position. Mark Ellis comes up, hits a bomb to make it 5-4, to four, and uh, Randy Velarde singles with two outs uh, uh, to make it even more interesting. But Eddie Gordado finally gets Ray Durham to pop up to second base to, Hawking. to end it. Catches it in foul territory. Yes. There he goes. And a pop-up. And they're battling the sun. Minkiewicz doesn't see it. Hawking comes over, and he's got it. And the Minnesota Twins have won the division series. The Oakland Athletics with a last gasp in the ninth inning. A dramatic comeback, but the tying run is stranded on base. And right before the pop-up, actually, John Miller foreshadowed how bad the sun was. Mm. So you th- it's like Uh-oh. literally like, a, like two pitches before John Miller is, in his John Miller way, is saying, Boy, any ball hit in the air here could be a problem. And like, oh my God, this pop-up, what if this drops? And this is how the Twins lose this game. So Eddie Gordado walks the plank, and uh, it wound up being Ray Durham, who I believe had trash-talked the Twins as being a fluke early in the year with the White Sox. Oh, really? And and so the Twins in their mm-hmm. post-game celebration made a bunch of comments about, yeah, I had Ray Durham, shut your mouth, buddy. <laughs> Even though he had like three hits in the game. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we just had a battle, man. It was Ray Durham, the guy that... All right, so uh, the Moneyball game, Michael Kadire. First question, are the rumors true that uh, when when the book came out by Michael Lewis about the Oakland A's, I think in 2003, are the rumors true that he actually approached the Twins first to write a book about how to win on on a low payroll uh, budget and then got denied, and so that's why he went and chronicled the Oakland A's? Man, I wish back then. I wish I was in that pay grade to know that information. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, at that time, I was just you know between contraction and just trying to uh, trying to find my footing in the in the big leagues. I have no idea if he came to the Twins or not. But uh, you know, Terry Ryan and those guys they figured out ways to win on that payroll, so I, it wouldn't surprise me. This is maybe putting you on the spot, but I think it's something that a lot of people think of. Had you guys been the Moneyball team, who would play Michael Kadire in the movie? <laughs> uh, probably one of the low-budget actors they could have found at that point in my career. So somebody, maybe just one of the extras, somebody they'd throw in. <laughs> uh, and I'm looking at this, too. You mentioned contraction that... What was that like as a player? You mentioned you're trying to get a foothold in the big leagues. I can't even imagine what that must have been like with the rumors in in the newspaper just about every day. What what was that like trying to grind through that? Yeah, well, you know, it was really weird for me. You know, that that whole period was really strange. 2002 time um, with contraction, with labor, the labor talks, the late, the you know possible strike at the All Star break, things yeah. like that. Um, you know, I, I remember. I was living in Fort Myers in the off season at the time, like 2001 and, you know, with, with AJ Prasinski and Doug Mankiewicz and Koski and all those guys were down there and, and they didn't know what was going to happen. Obviously none of us did, but I mean, I was just here. I didn't know anything that was really going on because of how young I was in the start of my career. And then 2002, 
I remember I, I get the call to call up, but I couldn't go yet because I didn't. Nobody knew what what was going to happen with the labor agreements, and then I, I it kind of I vaguely remember I got the okay. I flew to, flew up to the to the Twin Cities, and, and obviously the rest is history. But it was a strange. Mm. A strange year, I guess, so to speak. And then, you know, for us to have all the success, obviously, it's it's good that everything worked out for us. So, uh, you know, going back and watching that game, and just, it was such it was such an epitome of Twins baseball at the time, where you had you had Christian Guzman sprinting around the bases a couple times and making barehanded plays at short. You and Torrey Hunter making great catches in the outfield, and uh, Koski and, and Minkiewicz playing goalie at third and first base. It was like everything twins, and even Eddie walking the plank in the ninth inning, but still getting it done. Yeah. <laughs> like what? What do you? What do you remember most about being in the dugout during that game, um, or just some of the specifics about that breakthrough in Game Five? Yeah, I mean, I remember I, oh, Koski hit a big home run. If I if I'm if I'm correct, is that right? Or Koski well, was game one. Pierzynski went one. deep in game yeah, five. AJ hit the two run bomb that you thought the game was over, but you really you needed yeah. the Ortiz double to actually score the game winning run as it played it out. Was, yeah, it was the AJ home run. I remember when when the, when that home run was hit, thinking that we were we were obviously going to advance. Um, you know, but I immediately thought probably it was probably two months prior, a month prior when. The whole 18-20 game win streak was going on. Um, at that time, I thought I, my claim to fame was going to be I was going to break the record, and then AJ gave, or not AJ, but Eddie gave up a three-run bomb to Tejada, walked us off, and that's immediately what my mind went to. I was like, "Oh no, it's going to happen uh, again!" Oh no! <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and uh, you know, obviously, fortunately, it didn't happen. And I just remember, I think I was the first one at, at that time. I got. You know, defensive replaced what's happened to me a lot those years. Um, I remember running out of the dugout when I think it was Denny caught the last ball, I believe, if I'm, yeah. not, if I'm not mistaken. And I run out to the, to, to the meet Eddie, and I'm the first guy out there, and I give him this big bear hug, and then all of a sudden, boom, I fall on top of him with about 19 other guys. <laughs> and I thought I crushed him. Like, he's like, oh, my God, get off me, get off me. <laughs> I couldn't move. None of us could move. And uh, – you know, it was just such a unbelievable experience. You know, obviously I got the, the tail end of what those guys had experienced the years leading up to that. Um, you know, most of my experiences were the success. But knowing what those guys went through to get to that point, knowing the hardships of 1999 that they went through, and then for that to finally culminate after 2001 almost getting there, for 2002 to happen was, was such a, a, a huge um, moment for for all of our careers, but especially those guys that persevered. Cuddy, did you guys feel like underdogs going into that series? I mean, so much was made about you know what the job that Billy Bean had done with that Oakland team, and you know they had put together a really good team with such a low payroll, but they had a lot of stars on that team. I mean, Miguel Tejada won the AL MVP that year. Barry Zito, I think, won the Cy Young. I mean, they they were a loaded team that won a hundred plus games. Did you guys feel? Obviously, you guys felt very confident in your own abilities going into that series. But did you feel like a lot of people were sort of picking against you guys to win that series? Oh well, no doubt. I mean, they're a three headed monster. You know, you're, you're in a five game series, and they run out Tim Hudson twice, Mark Mulder, and Barry Zito on you. I mean, yeah, you're definitely feeling you know up against the wall, but. You know, I think what helped us is we had just played them previously. I think in the month of September, we may have played them twice and had some success and, and played them well. And, and I think that gave us some, some confidence. They also had Billy Koch at the end of the games to close out the game. So you know, they had a great team, but we also had a great team. And we had a hungry team that, that really wanted it. And, you know, we shook off some of the some of the nerves that we had in game one and then we were able to play well the rest of the series and ultimately obviously come out in game five and and win it you know and it was weird because the way the travel schedule was you know you didn't get as many rest days as there are now that's built into the playoff schedule i mean it was it was travel to minnesota it was oakland travel to minnesota play the next day travel back to oakland to play the next the next day game in, in Oakland, which was kind of strange for, for the way that the travel was and kind of murky. I'm glad they fixed that now for guys. <laughs> yeah. today. Obviously, because of, because of Moneyball, those, those Twins teams have been mythologized. Do you ever 
Do you ever think about or look back at at that and how people view that team now as the underdog? Because as you just laid out, you guys were more the underdog than they ever were. You went through the pitching staff. In the lineup, they had, I think, three all-stars that season. Yeah. Do you ever roll your eyes at, at the the way that that's been glorified or, or Hollywood-ized, I guess I would say, that they were this, this underdog story compared to what you guys were? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's funny. You talk about building teams on budget they had young players that were controllable i mean <laughs> they're they're those three that three-headed monster they didn't have to pay them yeah <laughs> Tejada, they didn't have to pay them Eric Chavez, they didn't have to pay them so yeah i mean a lot of it's made out of, of the money ball but they also had a, a, a you know an influx of young talent much like you know maybe the kansas city royals in 14 and 15 influx of talent coming up there and that was their window so a lot was made out of, of, you know, Scott Hatterberg and getting these guys that they could, you know, that could contribute. But you look at the, the core of that team, you know, like we mentioned, Tejada, Chavez, Mulder, Zito, uh, Hudson, um, you know, these guys, Billy Koch, these guys were young, controllable players that they didn't have to pay. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Right. That helps. And then all homegrown and developed. Yeah. So that, I think that's what gets lost is, you got to give credit to their to their player development on on the, of that Oakland A's. They're minor league coaches to be able to develop this young influx of talent to get there at the same time and compete. Sure, Koski told me a story one time about that game one home run. Actually, gave you guys the early series lead. Um, it's about Paul Molitor, and, and I ran it by Molly, and he. He wouldn't confirm it. I think he was just being humble. But I want to I want to ask about his influence on some of those teams when. Uh, Koski, the way he tells it anyways, Molly had told him like before an at-bat against Hudson, I think it was, that, hey, if, if you ever find yourself in a 2-0 count against him, you think it's a fastball count? It's not. Look for the changeup and sit on that or, or something like that. I might have the pitches wrong, but, hey, he'll try to sneak one by you, basically. Koski was sitting on it and drilled it out, gave you guys a lead, and you win game one. Uh, Molly says, I'm not so sure that's the way it happened, but it, do you have any examples of that where Molitor had his fingerprints on that team in addition to, obviously, we know TK, we know Garden Hire had their influences. Was there was there anything like that behind the scenes for you? Oh, Molly's got his fingerprints all over the organization, especially that team. You know, I mean, in my opinion, he's the the best baseball mind I've ever come across as far as knowing the game, knowing how to play the game, his instincts, and, and being able to relay those instincts. I mean, for me, you know, I think I attribute all of my base running to, to Molly. And, and, you know, he worked on base running constantly and would always talk base running and, and when to be aggressive, when not to be aggressive, how to be aggressive, how to run the bases, the specific details of the angles around the bags, things like that. Those are the things I've kind of built my, my career on, those, those attentions to detail, and, and it was all at the hands of, of Molly. So, he, yeah, he had his fingerprints on that team, you know, from the get-go, even though he really wasn't obviously with us that whole year mm-hmm. um, or that year in the in the big leagues. But still, you know, definitely made a lasting imprint on everybody on that squad. Yeah. Uh, all right, so Michael Kadire, the just one more quick thing here on the Moneyball game. The the A's, the book talks about it, and I think the you know, media talks about market inefficiencies and how at the time the A's realized that you could get on-base percentage and a couple other things uh, under the radar and teams weren't paying close attention to that. What do you think the Twins' hidden uh, hidden ingredient was between like 2001 and let's say 2006 or 2009? We didn't make mistakes, and we got we had guys on the team that bought into not making mistakes. You know, we had guys that bought into not having to be sexy, um, not having to be flashy, and and by that I mean just when a routine play comes, you make the routine play and you go on to the next play, and I think. That is what, you know, we had. We had guys that just, they grinded. All they cared about was when the ball was hit to them, they got the job done. When they were at the plate, we got the job done. That was that was it, bottom line. Yeah. And I think uh, especially in today's game, you know, that's an, a missing element. There are a lot of guys that play that way, but I think it's a missing element because of brand and show your brand and all this stuff. The element of the game is just get your job done and that we had a, a team of 25 guys and a roster of 40 that all we worried about was get the job done yeah.
So yeah. what stood out most to you guys when you when you soak in and digest this this whole thing? So much. I mean, a ton. And we let's just talk about the game first, and maybe this will get bigger af- as as we go along here. The bullpen would have been managed differently in 2019. Latroy Hawkins is throwing straight fuel to get out of the eighth inning with the Twins, who then take a big lead. Go ahead and let him finish the game. I, I get it. He's your closer. You trust him. But, like, let's be honest. When it comes to stuff, like, Hawk had it going. I think his last pitch was 98 miles an hour up to strike out Miguel Tejada. That's okay to let him face the rest of the good no, hitters in not, Oakland's lineup. Not in 2002. That's exactly no. right. And so my point is that, like, you brought that tightrope walking upon yourself. And good for Eddie that he eventually got out of it, but boy, did he make it sweaty. In fairness, though, Latroy Hawkins the year before, when the Twins were fighting for the division the whole year, he was their closer, and he blew like seven saves that year. (laughs) Just like would walk the bases loaded. And so O two 2 is really the first year that maybe both Gordado and Latroy Hawkins became legit. So I don't know. But you're right. In today's baseball... It wouldn't have been here's our setup guy and here's our closer. It would have been oh my god, this guy's on fire right now. Let's just sure. let's just and let Eddie it ride with him. would not have been your closer either. No, no, <laughs> no, he club. wouldn't. But I actually thought, and I tweeted this. I was live tweeting while I was watching this thing the other night. The 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 moment that they decided to take out Radke, that was kind of a, a modern baseball move. He did throw ninety five pitches, but I think a lot of managers in two thousand two, when they have their their ace on the mound, which Brad Radke was for them at the time, and he's only given up one run and wasn't really in in a in a bad spot. I think they had a man on first and one out, if I'm not mistaken, when they took him out, which isn't a great spot, but I think. A lot of managers in in that era of baseball probably leave Radke in there until he really gets himself in a tight spot or really racks up that pitch count. He had thrown 95 pitches at the time, which is, it's getting up there, but we saw Mark Mulder throw, what was it? I think the final count was... Uh, 113 on 113 three days rest. On three days rest. So, to me, it Derek is right about the way that the bullpen was handled later, but the time the timing of when he decided to pull his starter, I thought, was... It was kind of like baseball today. Yeah, yeah. What did you guys think of just some of the the broadcast stuff? Like no HD in mm-hmm. 2002. Yeah, that was terrible. How did we live? How it did we live? So like weird that? watching a box version of that game. Awful, right? awful. And 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 the next thing I noticed was they did have a K zone, but it but they only busted it out like five or ten times throughout the game, where they'd show you a pitch that happened, and then they'd show you kind of a weird. Lasered in version, yeah, of a of a like a fastball on the corner, but they didn't have the. We're so used to now having the K zone just on the screen all the time and seeing pitches outside. So I noticed a and lot of pitches. Umpires get it wrong, right? But I noticed a lot of, of pitches time. were like having been trained the last five or ten years to see exactly where that line is, and you can just tell right away. Now nope, that looked like a strike ten years ago, but it's clearly not. And John Miller was getting tripped up by some of that, where he'd say, "Where was that pitch?" Yeah. And then they'd show the K zone, and it would, it would be off the plate. But it's amazing to me, and it's why I've started the robot umpire takeover uh, movement. It's amazing to me that we had even that technology. We could have done better than umpires were doing at the time. Even with even with that very early technology of the K zone, we could have gotten balls and strikes more accurate than umpires were doing at the time. And yeah, the fact that we have like years ago. we have three D st- digital strike zones now that can tell you with almost one hundred percent certainty if it's a ball or a strike, and yet we're still letting humans do this. It doesn't make any sense to me and yeah. it irritated me watching that game and listening to that discussion that we're still having that discussion today yeah. it's ridiculous i also found it really interesting that so that that twins team had a certain heartbeat and a certain personality to it and i thought it was such a microcosm of everything twins in 2002 and that whole era you had christian guzman sprinting around the bases multiple times in this game christian, batting second by the way right Batting second with his two ninety seven on base or whatever it was. Right. So kind of a classic early 2000s philosophy. We should have known that that was going to be the book on Ron Gardenhire. That should have tipped his hand. Uh, I think it was the year before, though, that Guzman wound up with 15 or 20 triples, and and they viewed him as this superstar player, and he wound up being serviceable. But a a barehanded grab over the middle and an off-balance throw by Guzman. Uh, Torrey Hunter with an awesome sort of diving catch in the first inning. 
Kadir had a running catch in the corner at one mm-hmm. point. You had Doug Mankiewicz and Corey Koski essentially playing goaltender at third and first base. And um, I just like all of the Twins things. Jock Jones free swinging out of his shoes. Like everything you remember about those Twins teams showed up in this game five to me against the A's. And they weren't, and not that I am, and I don't mean this as an insult to anybody, but baseball was was a sport where you know guys didn't really lift weights like that's sort hmm. of a new like that started in the late 90s and even then some players weren't buying into it they're like it, it hurts your flexibility or whatever whatever the excuse was to not lift weights back then you look at those guys and like and on both teams you're like these aren't impressive looking guys these these guys don't look like pro athletes compared to baseball players of today as sports nutrition and sports science has advanced so much in the last 20 years and it was you know early on in that 20 years then baseball players are different animals now than they were in 2002 you look up and down that twins roster and you go these guys they don't they don't really look that impressive at all but that was just that was the baseball player of the day wasn't it well you but do you ever go back and watch games from like the 70s and like willie mcgee in the early 80s yeah those dudes are well, all athletes go look at basketball players from the eighties with their true, super true. short yeah. shorts. Like, are those legs? Like, what is <laughs> what's happening down there? <laughs> I think this team planted in a generation of Twins fans' heads that the way to win baseball games in a in a non major market, we can't go buy free agents, is to draft a bunch of guys all around the same time, start them in low A together, let them win there, and climb up. And how lucky do you have to be exactly for that, for that to be the formula? And what a bet to try to make that like, oh, our A-ballers, yeah, they won the uh, Florida State League this year. So look out American League in six years. We're coming for you like that. You, you wouldn't you wouldn't think that now. But a generation like probably all my friends growing up were convinced that is how a winning baseball team is constructed in Minnesota. The Twins are kind of trying that now, but, I mean, it's quite a bit more complicated than that. The Twins just struck gold running into Hunter, Jack Jones, Kadire, you know, Minkiewicz, Koski, Pierzynski, all kind of at that same time. My second thought off of that, and not to dwell on this too much, but for them to overcome not only the contraction and then to pay this off with a playoff series win – how disappointing is it that that collection then never really did anything? I mean, they had a great run of success. I'm not trying to take anything away from 2002 to 2010. They were a model franchise, but what did they ever win? This like, was well. Let's. This is a good segue. Into baseball fans don't know of this team at large. Key question number one, I guess, off of the Moneyball game from 2002, was this, but. Between 2002, or let's let's include 2001, because the Twins were really good in 2001. They just came up short. And 2010, which was sort of the end of this decade-long run of division champions. Was this the peak? They were, they were good for eight more years, but was this Game 5 win over the Oakland A's the peak of that contraction, scrappy uh, Metrodome into Target Field Twins not, game? Not for me. It, it was the peak of... It's the only playoff series they ever won in that stretch. Yeah, it was the peak of scrappy, I guess I don't even know, because like that team's talented, so I hate to even call it just like a, a you know plucky underdog story. It's like, <laughs> they had good players up and down. But it was the peak of defiant twins. The, well, no one gave us a shot, so bleep you, we're going to go win a playoff series with a bunch of guys you overlooked. Eddie Gordado is the closer, like, I say no more. But the peak for me of that run is easily, hands down, like, head and shoulders above the second place year, 2006, because it felt like that team should have won the World Series. In 2002, it was like, oh, my gosh, they won in a half-empty Oakland Coliseum. Cool. And... And, and the Angels they, somehow beat the Yankees, and oh my God, they get to play the Angels instead of the Yankees. That's right. Now? Yeah, I mean, and that was a good Angels team, so it was going to be a fun series. And I just, I look as I look back, I say 2006. You went into October thinking, "Holy cow, Johan wins game one," and then if you know if Liriano never gets hurt, blah blah blah. You started piecing that together, like this is a team that could win multiple series and, and take down the whole thing. 2002, it was like, 
let's get by the A's and see where we're at kind of thing. I guess I don't remember having the same assured feeling of this team's going all the way. So I had for sure, and this is where it's fun because Derek and I sort of grew up in this era Mm -hmm. of Twins baseball. And Rami, who's a Chicago native and spent the last decade in Milwaukee, you have this outside perspective of, so you can kind of check us at the door if our if our thoughts are <laughs> yeah, too romantic. Because totally. I had when they when they got beat eventually in I believe it was five games in the ALCS by the John Lackey Rally Monkey mm-hmm. Angels that went mm-hmm. on to win the World Series. The Adam Kennedy Angels. Yeah, Adam Kennedy who hit three hit like five bombs in his career, three in one game in the <laughs> ALCS against the Twins, and um, and I it was a foregone conclusion in my mind after that Angels series. This team. 100% wins a World Series in the next three to five years. See, I never, I, I never go that far when I'm when I'm pre- when I'm predicting or rooting for a team that I'll say they'll 100% win a World Series. And it kind of goes back to what Derek is saying, which is that the 2006 team was probably a better baseball team. You hear in the analytics yeah. community a lot. We're more concerned with the process than the actual than the actual results. And I think if you look at the 2006 team better baseball team but there are so many variables and unpredictables that pop up throughout a season and things that you don't even control that you might not go as far as it as it looks like you'll go on paper compared to past twins teams you know what i mean it it took it took a certain amount of of coincidence and and events to line up for them to get where they got in in 2002 which you can say about any team and any sort of playoff run i think i think we looked at the roster and the ages the, the lineup, A.J. Pierzynski, and the, and by the way, the Twins had drafted Joe Maurer by then, and so we knew that Joe Maurer was coming down the pipeline, mm-hmm. and A.J. Pierzynski was 25, Doug Mankiewicz was 28, Luis Rivas, who you might throw that name out now and fans are like, Luis Rivas, but in the moment, Luis Rivas was a legit prospect for the Twins, who was 22 years old, he was their starting second baseman for much of the year, Guzman was 24, Koski was 29. Jock Jones, 27. Torrey Hunter, 26. David Ortiz, 26. How about the pitching? A guy we haven't even mentioned yet on this show? Johan Santana was warming up in the bullpen to come in at one point in that game. Yeah. So this was the first year that Johan made some starts for the Twins. He was a Rule 5 guy like two years earlier. And uh, and so Johan pitched 108 innings split between starting and relieving. And it was very obvious you had this 23-year-old gem on your hands, and he was going to be a starter the next year in 2003. Uh, so you had you had the ace that was ready to rock. Kyle Loesch at the time was 23 and this potential big-time prospect pitcher. And then your bullpen. All these guys were 26, 27, LaTroy Hawkins, J.C. Romero. So I, imagine having that many top-caliber players between the ages of 22 and 29. And so I think when I say foregone conclusion, it was like, I mean... These guys are all either in their prime or emerging into their prime. They're already good enough to get to the ALCS. How do they not... And of course, the answer to that is the Yankees yeah, in two thousand three and two thousand four. In oh yeah. three, oh four, and then again in oh nine and, and two thousand ten. And you just don't know, and that's one of the variables and unpredictables that I talked about. You can put together the best team that your resources will allow, but you can't control how good a teams yeah. the teams around you are gonna are gonna put together, the organizations around you, I should say. You you never know who's gonna pop up and when, despite doing everything you possibly can to put together the best baseball team you can. Take this in whichever direction you want to, but the two very different sides of 2002, like 2003, was, okay, rearview mirror contraction. In the windshield is this decade of success, but also Liriano got hurt and David Ortiz left and became Big Poppy. Uh, So I guess I'll quickly say, if you want to talk about Ortiz, we sure can. Otherwise, we can talk about contraction because I think there's a ton of interesting elements there too. But (laughs) if just two what-ifs, Francisco Liriano does not get hurt in 2006 and David Ortiz becomes Big Poppy in Minnesota. Like, that is one of the all-time teams. It's it's, it's hard to avoid that conclusion. Maybe that's twins-colored glasses from my perspective because I was like, 15 watching this 06 team run through the American League with Jason Bartlett and Nick Punto. But to me, I look at the talent there and think, oh, if you only had been able to pay that off with Liriano, and obviously the one that every Twins fan is still scarred by is David Ortiz leaving and becoming big 
Big Papi in Boston. Well, let's go down the David Ortiz path here for a second because right. uh, I, I, I continue to scratch my head and beat this dead horse to this day of what was the thinking behind just letting him walk at the time. And I know that he had some injury issues. The Twins really liked Matthew LeCroy as kind of a DH type, and so they were platooning. And the Twins felt the Twins felt like they had hitters, and they I, I think they didn't like the fact that Ortiz was positionless. And as Ortiz will tell you, the Twins wanted him to be less of a straight up power hitter and just be more hit the ball to all fields. Of course, Ortiz complains about that. If you look at his batting average to opposite field in Boston for his career, it's ridiculous. And, yeah. and the Green Monster helps, but Ortiz hitting the ball to opposite field actually. Put him in a Hall of Fame category, most likely. Ortiz is a whiner. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> but if you look at his last two years in Minnesota, as a 25- and 26-year-old, and you let's throw away the injuries for a second, and just let's just extrapolate his numbers to a full season. His full season averages the last two years with the Twins were 30 home runs, mm-hmm. 94 RBIs, and an OPS of, like, 840. So I think the narrative is, well, Ortiz was just sort of trash with the Twins and... Uh, and it was right to let him go. And then there's another narrative that may or may not be true, that he got into the PEDs between Minnesota and Boston, and that's why you saw him just in the next three years in Boston, he became the best power hitter in baseball. But I don't know. It's it's such a mystery as to what the Twins saw, why they didn't hang on to him, and why the Red Sox were able to be the team for 12 years that took advantage of this right. monstrous generational power hitter. Well, yeah, I mean, so his final season with the Twins... I looked this up because if it was a money thing, then shame on the Twins. He was making nine hundred fifty thousand his last year in Minnesota. He goes to Boston for one point two five million dollars, and then becomes Big Poppy. Like, I, and Terry Ryan, for any faults the Twins fans will point to, uh, integrity is eighty out of eighty on the scouting scale, and he'll fall on that sword all the time. I don't know if it was his fault because you can never tell with Terry. He'll lie about it. He'll say he got lucky on the AJ trade and he screwed up the the Ortiz decision because that's just Terry. But that is an all-time gaffe if it was as simple as saying like, uh, we're going to have to pay this guy 250 grand more yeah. or, what, or whatever. He, he's, he is legitimately a modern-day Babe Ruth in stature, in power numbers. He's I I think he's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, um, me too. And at least at least the Red Sox when they sold Babe Ruth, they got like 150,000 bucks for him. I mean, the Red Sox got something for Babe Ruth when they sent him to the to the so, Yankees. Well, the, the Twins, Twins got nothing for David Ortiz. <laughs> the, well, the Twins got a roster spot and 300k of spending room. Good for you. You said that they wanted to make him more of a well-rounded hitter and not just a power guy, right? It's the well, narrative. The, so the, the, the there's two different ways that Okay. The Twins explained it as well, we need you to hit to all fields to be a well-rounded hitter. And David Ortiz said they just wanted me to be a slap-hitting opposite field guy and uh, and not look to hit bombs. They said, and I think the truth lies somewhere in between those two things. I think Ortiz has been quoted, I think, something like 657,000 times on this. And every time he uses the phrase, yeah, Tom Kelly and the Twins just wanted me to hit like a wimpy little B-I-T-C. Yeah blank (laughs) he's 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 pretty adamant about which direction that was headed so maybe it was just yeah fouled relationship i don't know i was too young at the time but we were just talking the other day on uh i think it was the score north twins show about the fact that the twins have been out homered as a team by their opponents since 2004 every year since 2004 do you think this and maybe it started in 2002, and it, you know these things take a while to manifest. Do you think this was the start of of just a an organizational philosophy about how they how they coached their hitters and and sapped the power from them, or or sent guys elsewhere who just wanted to pull the ball and swing for the fences? Uh, they definitely they definitely taught a similar style of hitting across the organization for a long time. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't like a Tom Imansky video where everyone has to have the same mechanics, but it was very much, this is our philosophy of how you hit. This is our philosophy of how you move runners over. Everyone's got to be able to do this. And now I think you're seeing with the with the Derek Falvey, Thad Levine twins, it's like, well, uh, we're not going to ask you to bunt because we shouldn't be bunting, period. And if, all you, if, if you're a pole hitter and you want to hit 30 bombs to left field, okay. 
But even at the end of the, the second Terry Ryan regime, they brought in guys like Willingham and Brian Dozier turned into more of a dead pull hitter. They hit some bombs. So yeah. they, they did evolve from that to some extent. I think part of it was the Metrodome. They were like, let's be a speed and defense and fundamentals team and just out heart you. <laughs> it was kind of, I mean, it was their thing. And then they've, they've developed some pretty good players along the way. So part of it is, yeah, playing to their confines. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating question because I don't know that they consciously would weed out a guy like Ortiz, mm-hmm. but there's definitely something there that they're going for, like the athlete and can you put the ball, can you hit behind the runner on yeah. second base and move him over? I mean, put, put, we can we can pair this onion a million different ways, and the Twins have had to answer questions about this. The reality is they were flat out wrong about David Ortiz. And David Ortiz went on to be one of the greatest power hitters of all time. I mean, uh, I want to ask this question to you guys. Because rumor has it the Twins turned down the opportunity to be featured in Michael Lewis's book, Moneyball, mm-hmm. that I think came out in 2003. Uh, so that, that, they, that he approached the Twins first, or at least approached them in tandem with the A's. And the Twins turned down the opportunity to be featured in this book. And so that's why it became a book about the Oakland A's and how do you win on a shoestring budget. If the Twins had either been in that book with the A's or if the Twins had been the subject of the book, period, and they were the Moneyball team, how do you think things would have played out? Do you, do you think, because the A's being featured in that book, I think a lot of GMs around the league, it was they basically unveiled their blueprint to smarter, uh, not smarter, but teams with more budget, Red Sox, Cubs, etc., that wound up stealing this stuff for years to come. If the Twins had been the feature of that book, what, what do you think would have been different? What do you think would have been played out? What would have been the the advantages that the Twins were were taking behind the scenes that well, other teams didn't know about? The movie could have been 15 minutes longer because the Twins actually went on to win a playoff <laughs> series. So that's that's a start, right? <laughs> that's a good point. Uh-huh. I, I think the movie ended with a pop up to it was a night game and a pop up to the third baseman. By the way, mm-hmm. uh, it's close and the, it's and, close. And the, I don't know what the reasoning is for the pop up being to the wrong side of the field, but the reason for it being a night game in Moneyball was for budget reasons. They filmed all the scenes. During like nighttime, no and, way, and they they weren't able to secure a daytime <laughs> filming of Game Five apparently. So, so I look at, I don't know, I I look at that A's team, and I think this is maybe revisionist history. Like I'm just remembering the book differently than it was, but that team was built around several stars. I mean, Eric Chavez, Miguel Tejada. Um, Scott Hatterberg's the mm-hmm. one that I kind of remember, but the book was more like Nick Swisher and uh, who was the reliever, the sidewinder, Bradford, Chad Bradford, Bradford, yeah. and yeah, like they focused on it's like the underdogs. Yeah, you're the like team, okay, even though they were stacked with not underdogs. Yeah, I rewatched this game expecting it to be a bunch of like Nick Swishers drawing walks and like oh, hope Kevin Euclid can work a twelve pitch walk. It's like no, that's not actually what happened. It's, Eric Chavez was a star. Miguel Tejada was a star. And they had three stars in their starting rotation. So I guess in hindsight, maybe it was about like improving on the margins. And, well, yeah, duh. Because so that team won. The, the 2002 Oakland A's won 103 games. Yeah, so, including, so, right, 20 in a row that year? Yes, that was the year they won 20. Uh, so you can make a case that even if they hadn't made some savvy pickups in David Justice and Scott Hatterberg, they're still like a 90-win team, yeah, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Moneyball, yeah, whatever. I, I, I'm trying to think like what the Twins' advantage would be, though. And the only thing I can think of, and, and maybe I'll pose this question to you guys, the only thing that possibly makes sense is like their scouts were better. They were better at scouting and identifying like this Minkiewicz guy. Keep an eye on him. He's he's on a track. He's part of this group, whatever. I, I'm just pulling an example at random, but like you might look at that single-A Orlando team and say, oh, there's a couple of players here. And to me, anyways, just sort of growing up following the Twins, the, the legend is, anyways, that led by, yes, Hall of Fame scout Terry Ryan, but a, a, it's not one man. There's a bunch of people in that department who are just – so much better than their peers at identifying talent, whether it's developing talent, whatever. I kind of think that's their advantage. But what throw it back to you guys, that series, now you know what the teams look like, the rosters. What 
What was the Twins' calling card I th- of that team? I think it was a, a couple things. Uh, they were very good at not walking opposing hitters as a pitching staff. So they just they just cut down on opposing base runners by mm-hmm. the fact that they just didn't walk anybody. And I would also add outfield defense to that mix. When sure. you have Jacques Jones and Torrey Hunter, and then depending on the year, you had my, young Michael Kadire was a lot more fleet of foot in the outfield because he was an infielder turned uh, outfielder. And always had a gun. You, you had, at one point in 2003, you had three center fielders in your outfield. You had Shannon Stewart playing left, Jacques Jones playing right, and Torrey Hunter playing center. So that by not walking opposing hitters and by stealing runs away, in the outfield, and you had some like Christian Guzman was a great defensive shortstop for a while. So, I would say they just didn't make stupid mistakes, and sure. they didn't let fly balls in the gap fall for doubles. That a lot of other like if David Justice is in left field mm-hmm. at thirty seven, compared to if Jock Jones is playing a corner outfield spot, or you got Tory Hunter in center, you know that's probably an extra several runs that you save over the course of a year that nobody really pays attention to. Right? Yeah, it was you, and I think you said this. To start the show, and maybe I don't know if we have to wrap up the show here soon, but maybe yeah, it's about a good, five more minutes. Okay, uh, but this game was kind of from the way you guys are describing it. Again, I do not remember the Minnesota Twins as clearly sure. as you guys do because I wasn't here living it. But from the way you guys are describing it, this game was kind of a microcosm of that that not just that Minnesota Twins team of that year, but an era where. They they didn't make a lot of mistakes and were opportunistic and pounced when the opportunity presented itself through a mistake that the other team made, like mm-hmm. the David Justice botched fly ball in, in left field and they score a run off of that. I think that was like I think it's it's a snapshot of of an era in Twins baseball. This one game, yeah, I, I would add too, because we're looking for market inefficiencies here, and like we've already mentioned, scouting, we've mentioned not making mistakes, not walking opposing hitters, and. I would add Metrodome okay. as a home field advantage. Okay. Sometimes crowd noise. We we saw that huh. in the early 90s. Probably a little less so. Fans did start coming back in like 2002-03, and, and it was a rowdy college-aged fan base that got rejuvenated. High school, college-aged kids with you know $1 hot dog nights and yeah. batteries at Chuck <laughs> Knobloch. Um, but, I, but I think the Twins did such a great job catering their, their roster to the Metrodome AstroTurf. Guys like Guzman, who could hit slapping ground balls that, that would triples. go through, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. I right. mean, they had they had guys who hit hard ground balls. Denard Span later on came up, and if you look at his numbers in the Metrodome compared to when he went to Target Field, he lost forty points off his batting average. I want to say huh. because those choppers at the Metrodome, uh, they don't wind up going through for hits. So speed, guys who put the ball on the ground, that that stuff works at the Metrodome. And if if you get some guys who can steal bases, so maybe if they had played. In a, in a in an outdoor grass field situation, they might with that exact roster, they might not win those division titles yeah. as frequently in the two thousands. Well, I think I I also want to tip my cap to guys like Tom Kelly, to Ron Gardenhire, that coaching staff who did put that fundamental approach in place. Like I totally want to be respectful of that and say that's a reason why the Twins were good. But also, I feel like the public narrative is always. That's the only reason the Twins were good is because TK insisted that you ran out ground balls or or whatever that that you that you fielded grounders cleanly or you weren't going to play. It's like yeah, that's a part of it, and they saved some outs and runs throughout the course of a year. But like this Twins team had good players, so we we shouldn't ignore that as we look back at the early two thousands Twins. Hey, just a couple minutes left here in this episode. Rami, you wanted to to bring up a couple broadcast related things. I love John Miller, by the way, and his pronunciations throughout the years, like Adrian Beltre and <laughs> Christian Guzman, and his his weird inflections. But what else did you notice on the broadcast that either stood out positively or negatively? I mean, I think we touched on it, Joe Morgan. Joe Morgan stuff? I forgot okay. about how how cranky and just. Miserable Joe Morgan was up there in that booth. So I, I was. Can watching... you imagine Joe Morgan doing today like modern baseball? Oh because he al- the game was already like way too different for Joe Morgan in two thousand and two. Can you imagine if he was in the booth <laughs> in twenty nineteen and the game that's being played today? We need his thoughts. It'd be John yeah. Smoltz times a hundred. Yeah, is what it would be. Well, I remember. I wish I had the specifics on this, but I was uh, t- last couple years of Joe Morgan's career on Sunday Night Baseball. And he he told a story about something that happened, sort of glorifying himself in some way. And uh, I don't know, it was some story about his days in the 70s. 
and somebody on Twitter, it was definitely early age Twitter, I think, because I think Morgan was still in the booth in like 09, 2010, and someone went to Baseball Reference to check out, okay, what, what happened there? And he's just and he and they found like five or six examples of Joe Morgan just blatantly lying as you go back, no and cr- kidding, or just like misremembering as you go back and and check Baseball Reference, no kidding. But at the same time, I want to be empathetic because Joe Morgan is one of the legendary players yeah. in baseball history, Absolutely. and sometimes I don't know, sometimes guys just don't evolve, and you can still celebrate their career. And he was a great broadcaster at one point, but I this was to, this is not one of his best games. I try to remember them separately, the player and the broadcaster. I'm going to throw a loaded question at you, Phil, before we wrap this up. Maybe you were too young. I certainly was, so I don't know. You're a couple years older than me growing up in on a farm in Minnesota. Did you think the Twins were going to be contracted? Um, or, or were you too full of youthful optimism that that was never even a thought? Probably a, I was. I was fearful because I was a huge Twins fan. Okay. And I remember, I remember rumors about North Carolina and them moving the team. Okay. Um, I think I was... Just remembering back to some of the stories that came out, I think I was bracing myself for the twins to be contracted. Okay. Yeah. Did you have a Did you have a backup plan, like a team you were going to start <laughs> yeah. rooting for? Cubbies. Well, Cubs. I was, yeah, I've always been a guy. Cubs. Have always been my my plan B team. And nice. and actually, there was a couple. The O three in the two thousand three playoffs when the twins the twins won one of the first two games at Yankee Stadium and took the home field advantage away. And the, and that was the year the Cubs had Kerry Wood. That was the Bartman year. Mm. And I was legitimately sweating. Are my twins going to play my Cubs? Like, it sounds great, but I don't know what to do. Yeah, conflicted. So, um, that's Rami Maklov, Derek Wetmore. I'm Phil Mackey, and this has been the 2002 ALDS Game 5, the Moneyball Game edition of Minnesota Sports Rewind, which wherever you're listening to this right now, you can subscribe to Minnesota Sports Rewind pretty much anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Another great place to find it is the Score North mobile app or just scorenorth.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.